Maggie Mayer on LBC. It's Friday, it's a quarter to five, it's Simon Marks' American Week. Eddie, the big question here in Washington this Friday is whether this was the worst week of Joe Biden's presidency. I personally still think that accolade goes to the week of the botched Afghan military withdrawal last August, but others disagree. Certainly there are yardsticks for measuring just how bad things have become here for him, and one is the new Quinnipiac University poll that this week showed the president's approval rating sinking to just 33 The president's backers, of course, dismissed the poll as an outlier. Some suggest the American public are just grumpy because it's winter and they've all got COVID. But beyond that one poll, this was also the week when Hillary Clinton's name was suddenly back in vogue. Two Democrat strategists argued in the Wall Street Journal that things are so bad at the Biden White House that she could swoop in and become the party's saviour in the 2024 election. No, really. Little wonder then that by last night on Capitol Hill, President Biden was a deeply unhappy man. I hope we can get this done. The honest to God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. This is the passage of crucial legislation to protect Americans against Republican efforts in states all over the country to make it harder for many of them to vote. And the president had just had the rug pulled out from under him yet again by two senators from his own party. He was incandescent. We miss this time. We miss this time. And the state legislative bodies continue to change the law, not as to who can vote, but who gets to count the vote. Count the vote. Count the vote. It's about election subversion, not just whether or not people get to vote. Who counts the vote? That's what this is about. That's what makes this so different than anything else we've ever done. I don't know that we can get it done, but I know one thing. As long as I have a breath in me, as long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting to change the way these legislatures have moving. Thank you. Shout it from the rooftops if you like, but the president knows that this week he was the architect of his own demise. And remember, we're often told here that because of his nearly five-decade career on Capitol Hill, he has the unique ability to get things done in Congress. Well, this week he made a complete hash of it, and it all started with a speech in Atlanta. The United States Senate, designed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, has been rendered a shell of its former self. I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. Now, I'm going to let you into a trade secret. There are some things foreign correspondents based here learn to dread, and one of them is the prospect of having to explain the filibuster. But with a heavy heart, I now have to do it, because in that world's greatest deliberative body that President Biden loftily described there, the rules are just bizarre. Most pieces of legislation need 60 of the available 100 votes to get passed. A simple one-vote majority doesn't get the job done. Sure, it's good enough for the House of Commons and even for the House of Lords, but it's not good enough for the US Senate. 
But when you're Joe Biden and you've only got 50 Democrats in the Senate, so you're 10 votes short, and Donald Trump's Republicans are out there spreading the big lie that America's elections are rigged and trying to make it harder for black Americans especially to participate in them, you need to do something to protect America's democratic fabric. So the president proposed making special arrangements to exempt the legislation from the filibuster, pass the rules with a simple majority. The Senate, he said, could defend democracy or side with some of America's most infamous historic racists. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. Now, you could hear from the gasps of the crowd that the president's language there was pretty explosive, accusing senators who oppose him of being on par with defenders of slavery and men who repressed America's black community. And it's worth noting that some prominent civil rights leaders boycotted that speech because they believe President Biden has taken them for granted and should have been out there promoting the voting rights legislation much earlier in his administration. So perhaps he was just trying to make up for all of that and show that he really is passionate about the issue. In that speech, he also, for the first time, accused the Republicans of launching an attempted coup when Donald Trump's supporters ransacked the Capitol a year ago. But at the Capitol, the president's language set off a firestorm. After all, Joe Biden was the man who vowed to heal the country's wounds, not rub salt into them. So much for unifying the country. And working across the aisle. Senator Mitt Romney, a former Republican presidential candidate and one of the party's last remaining moderates. This is a sad, sad day. I expected more of President Biden, who came into office with the stated goal of bringing the country together. And even some of the president's fellow Democrats moved to distance themselves from his rhetoric. Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois was asked on CNN whether the president really should have been comparing his opponents with the slave-owning racists of the Southern Confederacy. In 20 different states governed and led by Republicans in legislature and the governorship, in each and every one of them, they are taking step by weary step to make sure that Americans, fewer Americans, are going to vote. Perhaps the president went a little too far in his rhetoric. Some of us do. But the fundamental principles and values at stake are very, very similar. Ultimately, it wasn't Republicans who doomed the president's proposal. It was a couple of Democrats. Kirsten Cinema of Arizona is one of them. Without giving the White House any advance warning, she took to the floor of the Senate and torpedoed his plan. While I continue to support these bills... I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. There's no need for me to restate my long-standing support for the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation. There's no need for me to restate its role protecting our country from wild reversals in federal policy. It is a view I've held during my years serving in both the U.S. House and the Senate. And it is the view I continue to hold. The sound of a Democrat sending her own party's president back to square one.
The Supreme Court yesterday was at it as well. It blocked President Biden's vaccine mandate, saying that no, he cannot order private companies to require their employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. He was also knocked off his feet again this week by inflation, now at its highest level for 40 years, just months after the White House dismissed warnings that it was coming. And then there are the Russians. For us, it's absolutely mandatory to make sure that Ukraine never, never, ever becomes member of NATO. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov was one of a slew of Russian officials who this week toyed with the Biden administration like a cat sizing up a mouse. Three separate meetings in Europe over Ukraine made absolutely no progress. Though the Russians have more than 100,000 troops massed on the Ukrainian border and engaged in live-fire military drills this week, the talks began with some foreign policy hands here insisting the Biden administration had the upper hand Vladimir Putin, they suggested, was looking for an off-ramp in order to avoid the punishing hand of American sanctions. But the talks ended with the Russians failing to back down and continuing to insist that President Biden must sign a treaty to bar Ukraine from ever joining NATO. We are fed up with loose talk, half-promises, misinterpretation of what happened at different forms of negotiations behind closed doors. We do not trust the other side, so to say. We need ironclad, waterproof, bulletproof, legally binding guarantees. The Americans say that's a non-starter. The threat of military invasion is high. At the White House last night, a pretty downcast national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Our intelligence community has... Uh, developed information that Russia is laying the groundwork to have the option of fabricating a pretext for an invasion. Our position is quite straightforward. If the Russian military moves across the Ukrainian frontier to seize territory, we believe that that is the further invasion of Ukraine and it will trigger a response from the United States and the international community. But invited yesterday to say that all options are on the table, including therefore a military response to any Russian invasion, Mr Sullivan sidestepped it. He's also struggled to explain why the threat of American sanctions should constrain Vladimir Putin's thinking this time round when they don't appear to have done the trick during the Obama administration when Russia seized Crimea. President Biden had his attention focused on a different threat this week. He called COVID-19 one of the most formidable enemies the nation has ever battled. It has been a disastrous week in the Omicron stakes here. Almost 2,000 people a day are now dying across the country. Yesterday alone, more than 800,000 new cases. The acting head of the Food and Drug Administration, Janet Woodcock, said the quiet bit out loud during congressional testimony. I think it's hard to process what's actually happening right now, which is most people are going to get COVID. All right. And what we need to do is make sure the hospitals can still function, transportation, you know, other essential services are not disrupted while this happens. Amid record COVID-19 hospitalizations, the New York Times reports today that more than two dozen of America's 50 states have almost run out of beds. President Biden continues to insist that despite the vast number of so-called breakthrough cases in which the fully vaccinated and boosted are getting COVID, the country is enduring 
during a pandemic of the unvaccinated, more than 35 million of them. At the White House this week, he sounded like a cracked record. As long as we have tens of millions of people who will not get vaccinated, we're going to have full hospitals and needless deaths. So the single most important thing to determine your outcome in this pandemic is getting vaccinated. A White House that last month scoffed at the notion of providing free COVID tests for the public has now doubled its order and is buying a billion of them to give away. And fully two years into the pandemic, the president had this advice for people urgently seeking tests. You can find the nearest testing sites for you by Googling COVID test near me. Google COVID test near me. Let me just write that down. I think I got it. And luckily, I do have access to the internet. Meanwhile, the country's top doctor this week found himself on Capitol Hill testifying about the pandemic or trying to. More people have died now under President Biden than did under President Trump. You are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the government. So, again, Madam Chair, I would like just a couple of minutes because this this happens all the time. On Wednesday, Dr. Anthony Fauci had simply had enough of the nonsense unleashed on him by COVID skeptic and general all-round conspiracy theorist Rand Paul, a Republican senator from Kentucky. Here at length is Dr. Fauci. The last time we had a committee of the time before... He was accusing me of being responsible for the death of five, four to five million people. There are two reasons why that's really bad. The first is it distracts from what we're all trying to do here today is get our arms around the epidemic and the pandemic that we're dealing with, not something imaginary. Number two, what happens when he gets out and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden that kindles the crazies out there and I have life threats upon my life, harassments of my family and my children with obscene phone calls because people are lying about me. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website and you see Fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says, contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. Imagine having to endure all that. There was one reminder this week of the country's possibilities as opposed to its current predicament. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. The great American poet Maya Angelou, who died in 2014, but who this week became the first black woman ever to appear on the back of the American quarter, the 25-cent coin. In one of her crowning works, she could have been channeling Dr. Fauci. You can shoot me with your words. You can cut me with your lies. You can kill me with your hatefulness. But just like life, all right. In the New York Times today, columnist David Brooks writes that America is falling apart at the seams. That is a contention, Eddie, that is sadly very hard to dispute. Simon Marx's American Week, back next Friday at a quarter to five.